0: Uh, Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're moving on to the next portion of Paul's letter to the Roman Christians And before we read the Word of God and enter into this text, let's begin our time of prayer Lord God, we do ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts by the Holy Spirit The comforter, the counselor The one you have given to us, not to simply make us feel better but to lead and guide us into all the truth. To bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is His, what He's accomplished, and making it known, applying and quickening to our hearts. So Lord, I'm reminded of the valley of the dry bones and of the prophet Ezekiel, and I pray, Father, that You would wake up these dry bones, that You would blow by the wind of the Holy Spirit and cause us to have flesh, and to live and to be alive and soft and hard hearts, breathe into us life, that we would be captured by the wonder and the beauty and the excellence of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The text upon which the teaching is based this morning comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, or Do you not know, brothers, And not in the old way of the written code friends this is the word of the lord we are all creatures who are shaped by the stories that we are familiar with whether we know it or not stories form us they have a formative power they are what shape shape us for me a major part of my own personal story are basically two things sports the city of New York. They kind of come together for me. New York because even though I didn't live there for very long, many of the values that are most important to me that truly shaped my early life were formed out of that period of my life. I can look back and see where I learned those things. And sports because at a young age, I know sports has a lot wrong with it, but for me at a young age I learned of what I consider a lot of good things from sports. I learned things like teamwork, and working together, and sacrificing yourself for the good of the whole, the good of the body. I learned about discipline, and training, and things like that in terms of sports. So this week, when the news broke that Eli Manning, the 15-year quarterback of my beloved New York Giants, had been replaced by the rookie, Daniel Jones, Even though I logically understood it, I have to admit, I was actually pretty emotional over it. I was kind of sad. Why? Well, in my mind, for my team, Eli was a legend. He was iconic. He had been the quarterback for two Super Bowl wins. He had led them on those two amazing playoff runs. I know that there were many who didn't think he was all that great of a quarterback, but for me, he was a legend. He handled himself with class and professionalism. Some of the values that I uphold. He is still completely loyal, some might say even to a fault. There's just a lot I admire about the way he conducts himself. So, and this may sound strange to you, he's a part of my story. Sports and New York kind of come together a little bit in terms of Eli Manning. Now, for the world of the Roman Christians, especially for the Jewish Christians, but even for the Gentiles, in the city of Rome, their life-shaping story was the story of the Exodus. That was the story that shaped and formed them, the story of how Israel was liberated from bondage to slavery in Egypt, delivered from one realm, the realm of slavery, and entering upon a new freedom. And a major part of the story of the Exodus is the place of the law. Whereupon coming upon the Red Sea, they come to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up the mountain, receives the law, and comes down, and the people of God enter into this covenant relationship with Yahweh, and the law defined that relationship. Now that was the story that formed in them. So now if you are a faithful Roman Christian, and you're hearing Romans 6 with its echoes which sounds a lot like you, to you, like the Exodus, you're brought from death to life. You've died to save, you've entered upon a new freedom. You've died to one realm. You're liberated to another realm. The obvious next question that you're thinking is, where's Mount Sinai in the story? That's what comes next. You're on the edge of the seat, and you're kind of going, this is the next part of the story. I'm turning the page. I'm liberating into freedom. Give me the law. We receive the law at Mount Sinai. It makes us a privileged nation. In fact, it separates us from all the other nations. It signals to the world that we belong to God. It defines and shapes our life. So what about the law? Paul begins here in Romans 7 with the words, "Or Do you not know, brothers? Do you not know, brothers and sisters? And then he says, kind of almost as in a parenthesis, For I am speaking to those who know the law. He is now writing to a people who through their union with Christ have left behind the land of slavery and have entered upon a new freedom. And now, as one writer puts it, in Romans 7, Paul is wrestling with the question of what happened at Mount Sinai and the problems that resulted, leading to, listen to this, a strange new fulfillment of the law. Dan Allender writes, stories don't always give us the answers, but they do offer us perspective. And here as Paul is embarking on this kind of new section of his letter to the Romans, he is wanting to give the Roman Christians a new perspective on something that has occupied a dominant place in their lives. A new perspective on the law. And he does so in this particular passage in two ways. He does so through a fundamental principle. The structure of this passage is actually quite simple. That's verses 1 through 3. And then through a surprising twist, which comes in verses 4 through 6. So actually, very easy to follow, very easy to take notes on. Verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6. Let's dive into the text. Look with me at verse 1. He says, "Do you, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. There's your fundamental principle, by the way. The law applies to someone only if he's alive. If you're dead, the law no longer applies. kind of seems logical, right? You think I'm a deep preacher. I'm really quite simple. I come up with these things pretty easily. He says, for a married woman, now he's giving an illustration, is bound by law to her husband while he lives, But if her husband dies, guess what, she's free. She's released from the law of marriage. Basically, he said, she can marry anybody she wants, because he writes accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay? Now let's ask this question as we dive into this principle. How does this fit in? How does this work together with what Paul has just said and taught in Romans chapter 6? You remember Romans chapter 6, Paul is rejecting certain conclusions, false conclusions, that can be implied or reached from his teaching on the gospel. So, for example, in verses 1 through 14, Romans 6 divided basically into two halves, verses 1 to 14, And verses 15 to 23, each beginning with a, what's called a diatribe, sort of question, where he says, what then? Verse 20 says, what then? Should we continue to live in sin that grace may increase? Now what is he doing there? He's reflecting back on what he had taught in chapter 5, verse 20. Where again, and this is really key to understanding Chapter 7, where we are now, I'm not just reviewing, because what is he talking about in chapter 7? I was giving you a test right now. What is he talking about here? The law, the place of the law in the Christian's life. Now in chapter 5, verse 20, he kind of hinted at that. Because he said something, and if they were paying attention, reading this letter, this would take them kind of off guard a little bit, because he said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. I'm sure they're thinking, what? Isn't the law there to show us what we're to do, what we're not to do, how to obey, how not to, you know, what's disobedience? He says, no, the law, he says this back in chapter 5. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where the trespass increased, where sin increases, grace increases all the more, which leads him in chapter 6 to anticipate the question, should we continue to live in sin so that the more we sin, Hey, yay, grace! I keep sinning and grace keeps increasing. I think I'll help it out. I can be creative in my disobedience. I am such a good little assistant to God. I'll help God's grace out by sinning a whole bunch. And Paul, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. This is not the exact Greek. Pretty much says, are you kidding me? You're off your rocker. Okay, that's the paraphrase of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. His answer is, the triumph of grace does not produce sin, for the Lordship, the domain of sin, has been definitively broken through believers' union with Christ. If you're remembering one thing about our study of the Book of Romans, please remember this. The heart of the Christian life, John Calvin taught this. All of Calvin, we talk about the five points of Calvinism, we talk about tulip, we're in love with flowers. We're enamored over predestination. You know what John Calvin said the heart of the Christian life was? Union with Christ. Every benefit comes from the believer being incorporated into the life of Christ so that Jesus' death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. And His ascension is your ascension. You've been united with Christ. Then in verses 15 to 23, he does the same thing, saying, Being under grace rather than being under law does not promote sin. Which leads to chapter 7, where he's kind of continuing the teaching, basically going, Well, what then is the place of the law in the Christian's life? And he's not answering every question regarding that, but he's introducing the teaching on the law that truthfully will not be answered fully until chapter 8 when Rick will teach on this next month, which basically says God did through Jesus what the law could not do. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. So what the law was not able to do because it was weakened, and Paul will teach on this in Romans chapter 7. There's nothing wrong with the law. You know who's got something wrong with it? Raise your hands. It's our fault. The law is fine. That's next week's teaching. It's holy. It's good. It's fine. We're the ones with the issue. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Romans is Thomas Schreiner. You notice I quote him every week. You have picked up on that. He writes on this. He says, here's the main issue in Romans chapter 7. The main issue in Romans chapter 7 is the relationship between the law and sin. How the law is an ally to sin rather than the solution to the problem of sin. Do you hear that? The law is a help, a boon to the problem of sin rather than what the people of Israel thought was that it was the solution to the problem of sin. And what Schreiner writes is what Paul is especially exposing in his teaching Is the inherent incapacity and weakness of the flesh. So what does Paul do? He begins with an illustration. He says, "...that of a married woman to make his point." And his point is simple. His point is where death occurs, it releases people from the obligations under the law. Verse 2, "...for a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives." But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So, verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. See, again, Schreiner says what's being taught here is one's relationship to the law changes. This is the principle. One's relationship to the law changes when death occurs. And another writer puts it this way. He says, what is Paul doing here in the beginning? these beginning verses of Romans 7? He says, Paul wants to explain what the law was given for it. In other words, it's true purpose. And how in a strange sense, it actually did the work God set it up to do. And that it is now, in a new sense, fulfilled through the work of the Messiah and the Spirit. Paul is explaining that the law itself could not give the life it promised but instead was bound to work on the negative side of the equation, part of Paul's overall strategy, which is to explain to the Roman Christians the deep-level transition that has been made through the Gospel from the covenant family defined by the law to the covenant family defined by Christ and the Spirit. What is Paul doing? He's showing, first of all, the law accomplished exactly what God said it happened to do. The law accomplished exactly what God wanted it to accomplish. The only thing is, God didn't set out for it to accomplish producing righteousness because of sin. So in other words, it didn't have a positive purpose in that sense. It didn't produce righteousness. It did have a positive purpose in the sense it reveals and informs the person of God, the believer, the church, or at least it's intended to, of their unrighteousness and their need for a Savior. See, all you have to do is look at Israel's history and life to see the true purpose of the law. It's interesting, if you want to see what the law produced, real interesting in our kind of community Bible reading that we're doing, I don't know how many of you are reading that, but we're reading through the book of Ezekiel, Okay, let me sum up Ezekiel. I've never preached all the way through Ezekiel. I think I can do it in one week. Okay? Two points. Israel fails. God is the Lord. There's Israel. Now, but I want you to picture this. Who had the law? Israel did. They had the instructions on how to live and read through the chapters of Israel. It is one message. One, they're in trouble, they're idolaters, they are a dumpster fire, if I can put it that way, they're blowing it all over the place. They're meant to be an example to the nations, and what did the law produce in their life? Dumpster fire. And again, not the law's fault, because of their sin. Again, listen to how Schreiner puts it. He says, Israel's life under the law did not produce righteousness, for they sinned so repeatedly and so dramatically There's your message of Ezekiel, by the way. That they ended up in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, They ended up in exile. I've said Ezekiel so many times, and that was my improv illustration. I'm missing my notes. That has the word exile printed right here. Don't I make you feel better, Rick? I do this kind of stuff every week. Finishing Schreiner's quote, Life under the law spelled not life for Israel, but death. While those who are united with the last Adam, Jesus Christ, have died to the dominion of the law, and thus they are enabled to do what Israel was called to do, bear fruit for God. The promise of the Spirit, which was made to Israel, has become a reality for those united with Christ, so that they can serve God the way Israel failed to serve. That's the principle. But Paul doesn't leave it there, because now he gives it this surprising twist. Look with me at verse 4. He says, so he's laid out this principle. Now, look at the twist. He says, likewise, my brothers. So what is he doing? He's applying the principle to us. And he says, you all have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. There's the central proposition. Verse 4. You all have died to the law through the body of Christ, meaning through the death of Jesus Christ. One of the implications, one of the ramifications, one of the realities is you've died to the law. In what sense have you died to the law? Well, At least in two senses. One, you've Died from the condemnation of the law. Again, Rick will preach on that next month. Why is Paul able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because if you've died to sin with Jesus, you've died to the condemning power of the law. I want you to memorize this line. The law of God cannot touch you. All this pressure. You know what the implication of this is? And I want you to take a deep breath. Pressure's off. Go like this. Jesus was pleasing to God. You are in Jesus. You are pleasing to God. And the law of God cannot touch you. But what do we do? We continue to go back by the law in order to live. You want to have a victorious Christian life? Do these five things. You want to have victory over sin? Do these seven things. Seven is the number of perfection, right? It's not always be seven things. You want to have a great marriage, tremendous finances, perfect kids, two point five of them, of course, white picket fence, great health, dare to be whomever. Follow these principles. Whether it's the law of Moses or not, doesn't matter. Our functional theology at that point is basically saying the law of God is what changes us. Friends, wake up and look at the history of Israel. The law of God produces death. Look with me at verse 5, which is basically unpacking the proposition and the principle of verse 4. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, and flesh there is our life opposed to God. That's what the definition of flesh is not your skin and bones, it's the principle of life, and we're going to have to remember that as we work our way through Romans chapter 7, it is the principle of life opposed to God. And he says, for while we were living that way, opposed to God in the flesh, our sinful passions, which is basically the desire and the passion to live, opposed to God. Look at this next phrase aroused by the law. You see what the law does to the flesh? It's pretty much like a cheerleader saying, go flesh, go flesh. <laughs> and yet what do we do? We keep living by the law, living by principles. And then verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, What held us captive was sin, and we died to that. When you died to sin, you died to the law. You were released from the law, so that for this purpose, we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. Remember I said earlier, the covenant people have gone through a transition, a transition from being defined by the law to being defined by Christ and the Spirit. Grace, he still basically... Continuing his teaching from Romans 6, grace rather than producing sin. It is grace, and grace alone, that allows you to reflect the glory of God, become Christ-like, and serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not of the written code, not of the letter. Now how does this come about? Look again up at verse 4. In verse 4 when he says... Likewise, my brothers, you all. Here's the surprising twist. The strange new fulfillment of the law is that you've been released from the law. You've died to the law. You're free from the law. Not that the law doesn't have a place, and he will teach on that in coming chapters, but basically the law finds its place and has its place because what happens to you as a Christian is you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So you're not released from the law, from the power and the condemnation of the law, so that you could live autonomously and independently. You are released from the condemning power of the law, so that you could be married to another. You could be married to Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians chapter two, verse nineteen, he says, "For through the law, so that I might live to God." And it's, again, our community Bible reading this morning. And you tell them I'm giving some plugs and commercials from that. I'm using it in illustrations. You may want to get on board and let's read together and be a family. But 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the Corinthians church. This is amazing. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I, he's describing his ministry to the Corinthians church. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You want to know the most intimate metaphor for describing our relationship to Jesus Christ? Is that we are his bride and he is our husband. This is what I've been talking about when I said God's plan from the beginning from all the way back to creation was communion with his people. And what God the Father promised God the Son and covenanted with the Son to go and restore it, go and redeem it, go was that he would have a bride for himself. Paul uses the marriage illustration because it says we've been released from the power of the law so that we may belong to another. I wonder if we truly understand the glory of what it means to not be our own and the glory of what it means to be betrothed to Jesus Christ, to belong to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this kind of provocative and hard question. How is your intimacy life with Jesus these days? How's the warmth of your prayer life? How's the closeness of your marital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's the picture. And Paul says, I am filled with a divine jealousy for you because I want to present you to Jesus as a pure virgin to Christ. And then he says, I'm afraid, I'm scared, here's what I'm scared of, I'm scared that as the serpent deceived by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. When will we finally be convinced that our only true happiness is an intimate communal life with Jesus Christ? We've been released from the power of the law, not so you, hey, you're free, go do whatever you want. That's the question he's asking in chapter 6 but so that you can finally be joyful and happy because you belong to another, the one who's your true protector, the one who's your true husband, the one who does everything a husband ought to do, who loves you, who gives himself for you, who sacrifices, who lays down his own preferences, his own agenda, his own will, his own ways for the sake and the well-being of another. Do you know that's what Jesus Christ lives for? He lives to give himself away for the good of your soul Do we understand what it means to be the bride of Christ, and are we, in the freedom, pressures off, the law can't touch you, but are you cultivating that relationship with Christ? Are you cultivating that intimacy with Jesus? Because you've been released from the pressure, the power of the law can't touch you, so that you're free to cultivate that relationship with Jesus. We belong to the one who has been raised from the dead, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit." Friends, that's the only one. You might think, what does it mean to bear fruit for God and serve in the new way of the Spirit? He's intimating there. You know what that looks like for us? That's the fruit of the Spirit. What does it mean when he says, bear fruit for God? I mean, I think we tend to, again, be very, do I dare say, almost American success-oriented in our thinking. Bear fruit for God, that means, I, for me, I better look at how large my church is. Those things are not dependent on us. The results are not. Bear fruit for God means, am I cultivating an intimacy with Jesus that I'm clothed with his personality? That I'm clothed with what it means to look like him. To reflect Jesus, and embody Jesus, and what is Jesus' personality like? That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the personality of Jesus. Jesus is love. Jesus is pure joy. Jesus is shalom or peace. Jesus is patience or long-suffering. How long-suffering are you in your commitment to other people for the good of other people? He's patience. He's kindness. Even in his confrontation of others, he does it with a kindness, and a goodness, and a faithfulness, and a tenderness, a gentleness, and he's always in control of himself. That's the personality of Jesus that you are being enveloped in, and that is the new way of the Spirit. And the only way it occurs is not through the law, but through cultivating life in Christ. Immersing ourselves in the Word and in prayer and in the sacraments and in fellowship and in community, coming to Him with pressures off and saying, "I'm boasting in my weaknesses. My heart is hard and it's cold. Lord, would You feed me with Your warmth, with Your tenderness? Lord, I'm stuck in my habits. Release me from the power of the law. Clothe me with Christ." Our need is walking with Jesus, not following good biblical principles as good as they are. And next week's sermon will touch upon that. The law is good and right and holy. But we need to relate to the law in a proper way and recognize we've been released in it so we can serve in a new way of the spirit. Let's pray. Father, may you teach us to walk and to cultivate intimacy with you. In the power of the spirit, may we be defined by the Spirit, and by you, Jesus. Not by principles for living, not by the law. May we truly be defined by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.